What is it that moves the nations? What influences the course of kingdoms and empires? That was the question that was on Leo Tolstoy's mind when he sat down and he wrote War and Peace. He expressed how on the one hand, the actions and the behaviors and the choices of the millions of people that make up the masses can hardly be attributed to the decisions of a few dozen powerful leaders across history. But at the same time, the story of history can't be told apart from the decisions of emperors and kings. So what is it that weaves together the ebb and flow of time that we call history? And he could sense these invisible threads that shaped the course of history, but who or what was weaving it all together? In an interview with the L.A. Times, the interviewer asked Stephen King, says, I remember the last time we spoke, you said you believed in God. Is that still true? And King said, yes. I choose to believe it. There's no downside to it. If you're someone that says, well, okay, I don't believe in God. There's no evidence of God then you're just missing the stars in the sky. You're missing the sunrises and the sunsets. And you're missing the fact that bees pollinate and all these crops and keep us alive in the way that everything just seems to be working together. Everything is sort of built in a way that, to me, suggests intelligent design. But at the same time, there's a lot of things in life where you have to say to yourself, well, if this is God's plan... It's very peculiar. And you have to wonder about that guy's personality. The big guy's personality. You hear the tension in his answer. Something that we all feel. Looking around at the world, you can't help but believe in a higher intelligence and see the beauty of created order. And yet, at the same time, how does all of that factor into the fact that we see so much chaos. And today's passage is a glimpse behind the veil of this world, showing us what shapes its movements and directs its course. It shows us the weaver that Tolstoy tried to find and the author that King couldn't quite explain. And the book of Daniel is about God's sovereignty. And last week we considered God's sovereignty and suffering. And this week, we will consider God's sovereignty and earthly power. And power is very much on the mind these days as we head into midterm elections next month. It's a season where there's a lot of hubris, a lot of rhetoric, a whole lot of words, a lot of promises, a lot of hopes. It's also where there's one where there's a lot of fear. And understandably so, as people worry about our nation, worry about our future, we wonder about who will have power and how will our lives be affected as the dynamics of power shift and move. And so what do you think about earthly power? How do rulers and authorities and kings factor into your faith? It's important to know for two reasons. One, 
is because we will have earthly powers that rule over us. But secondly, just like last week when we considered suffering, what you think about earthly power is a reflection of what you think about God. What you think about earthly power is a reflection of what you think about God. And all around us, we can hear all sorts of different ways where God and earthly power are reconciled together in all sorts of ways. One of the common ones in some form or fashion is that it's often implied that God has moved when your candidate or your party comes into power and God has not moved when they don't. And what that subtly does, if we're not careful, is it makes us think and consider God's power based on earthly power. But that just raises more questions than it answers, doesn't it? If we just get outside our little world, is God's primary vehicle for his purposes really through holding power in politics? And do politics actually thwart God's purposes? Because what does that mean for the majority of Christians in history and even in this world that don't have power and never will? And how does that view of God offer hope to the millions of Christians that suffered under the Roman Empire? Or the millions of Christians that were slaughtered by Mao Zedong in a cultural revolution in China? Or those worshiping today in secret in North Korea? And how would that view of God have offered hope to Israel under Babylon? Or just think about how for decades now, you know, we've heard some version of the statement, we need to take back America for God. And I understand the sentiment behind the statement, but do we not also hear what that implies? Because it really makes you have to ask the question, how do you know he lost it in the first place? Who took it from him? And why would you serve a God that's so small and petty? And what makes us think that we can take it back if our God couldn't hold on to it? Because all that just presents a view of God as though he's wringing his hands, hoping for a great voter turnout in November. And of course, we're going to be anxious and afraid if we think that our God has the chance of losing power every four years. And what we think about earthly power is a reflection of what we think about God. And these views just paint a picture of God whose power is just a product of the people. Yet is your life in order? What power could we possibly give to him? It presents a view of God where his influence in our world is based on what we can win for him. Or it presents a God where Jesus is only on the throne if our candidate is in office. And look, even though we may not say it that way, it's easy to think that way. And these views can't even explain God in the book of Daniel, yet alone the God of the whole Bible. And Daniel invites us to have our perspective flipped to where what you think about God shapes what you think about earthly power. 
Because God in the book of Daniel is a sovereign God who declares the beginning from the end. The God who works all things according to his purpose. He is the God of power from whom all power is given. Full stop. All rulers and authorities and powers and dominion are from him, through him, for him, and to him. God's sovereignty asks us to see the world by faith. Why? Because God's sovereignty does not promise you earthly power. And God's sovereignty does not mean that our lives will always be comfortable. But God's sovereignty is always offering us comfort. Because it reminds us that nothing's outside of his power. Nothing's outside of his plan. Because you know what scares me? It's not a sovereign God. It's a God who isn't. That means everything is random. You're suffering. The powers, the authorities, all of that. You should be worried. You should be scared. But God's sovereignty says something else. That it's all going according to a plan that we don't understand. And we cannot see. But our God is a God of power. He is a sovereign God that calls us to trust Him and to view all the chaos by faith. It's in this passage that Nebuchadnezzar comes to us and says, Friend, do not get so caught up in earthly power that you forget about heavenly power. He says, That's what I did. But I want to tell you about real power. And evidently, God wants us to hear what Nebuchadnezzar has to say because this chapter is the only chapter in the entire Bible that's written by a pagan king. And Nebuchadnezzar, in all of his earthly power and might, was given a glimpse behind the veil to see the sovereign weaver, the sovereign author, the sovereign power over all things. He saw the God who reigns, and he wants you, us, to see it too with him. He wants to see it with the eyes of faith. Because Nebuchadnezzar tells us that God's dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures when all other kingdoms fade away. He changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Before him, all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. He does according to his will among all the inhabitants of the earth. Whatever he wants, and no one can say to him, what have you done? He saw a glimpse of the one who spoke all things into existence with his voice. He saw a glimpse of the one who scattered the nations at Babel like ants on a hill. He saw a glimpse of the one who destroyed and crushed Pharaoh and his entire empire using nature and insects. He saw the God who was using him like a pawn. And the God who used Cyrus like a puppet to do his purposes. The God who before him the nations are like dust and accounted as nothing. And compared to him, all the mortal inhabitants of this world are like emptiness. Do you see the God that he wants you to see? All vocabulary falls short. 
Do you see our God of power? But that's not all that Nebuchadnezzar wants us to see. He invites us to go much deeper with him. Because God's sovereignty is about more than just acknowledging his power. Because in the first three chapters of Daniel, we see Nebuchadnezzar acknowledge God's power multiple times. He acknowledges God's power after Daniel interprets his dream in chapter 2. He acknowledges God's power in chapter 3 whenever he saw the God who walks in fire in the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But here in chapter 4, it's different. And we learn that there is a difference between acknowledging God's power and offering Him your allegiance. And up to this point, Nebuchadnezzar has seen God's power, but it never impacted his pride. It never impacted his heart. Because after all that he'd seen, he had yet to say, what is this God doing? And what does this God require of me? What does this God want? It's one thing to say that God has power, but does he have power over your life? And this story is a reminder of God's mysterious ways and how his sovereignty is often strange to us. Because it shows us that he's after the hearts of the very people that we are prone to despise. God used Nebuchadnezzar, this foreign pagan king, to come and destroy Jerusalem, plunder the temple, carry off God's people into the harsh existence of exile. Why? Because not only was God after the hearts of his people, he was also after the heart of this pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar. Because God was still on mission, even when his people were not, continuing to reveal himself as a light to the nations. We have to remember that. Because in a time in which we see the church want to separate and isolate itself more and more from a secular pagan world, the story is a reminder that our God moves towards a pagan world. God does not fear a pagan world, and neither should his people. He orchestrated all of these events so that truth could be spoken to power. To bring Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego close to Nebuchadnezzar, so that God can bring Nebuchadnezzar close to him. And in this chapter, God got him. This chapter is a letter from Nebuchadnezzar to his entire kingdom, to all the peoples of the earth. And it is a remarkable letter for an ancient king to write in ways that we will never understand. Because he's telling his empire... I want to tell you what happened to me. I want to tell everybody. I'm not keeping this to myself. I want to tell everyone about my conversion. I want to tell about how I was humbled. Can you imagine one of our leaders saying that? He's bearing witness to what God has done in his life. Like Peter making sure his own failures are written into the gospel. Like Paul boasting in his own weakness. Like the blind man saying, now I see and I want you to see too. So what happened to Nebuchadnezzar? 
He tells us in his letter that he was at ease in his palace. An ancient way of saying that life was good. But only on the outside. On the inside, he was miserable. Because he was haunted by a dream. He says, in my dream, I saw a massive tree in the middle of the earth that reached all the way up to the heavens. And the whole world could see it. It provided, it was beautiful beyond compare. It provided food for the whole world, for all of humanity. It was a place of shade for all the beasts of the earth. It was beautiful. But then all that beauty is interrupted by a watcher that comes down from heaven and declares, chop down the tree, cut off its branches, and strip it bare and let all life flee from it. Take it all the way down to its stump and its roots. And take away his mind and let him be like a beast of the earth until seven periods of time pass over him. Until he knows that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and he gives it to whomever he wills. Nebuchadnezzar has all of his wise men come to try and interpret this dream. And then he sends for Daniel when they can't interpret it. And it says when Daniel heard the dream, he was actually very frightened and dismayed because he knew what it meant. And he says, King, may this be for you or not be for you and may it be for your enemies. Because in your dream, the tree that you saw, that tree so great and mighty, that tree chopped down and laid bare, You are the tree. You are the tree. O king, this is a decree from the Most High God that you will be driven from among men. You will lose your mind and live like a beast of the earth until seven years have passed, until you know that the Most High rules over the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he wills. Now in the Zach Standard Version of the Bible... The ZSV. I like to think a little Johnny Cash was playing in the background. You can run on for a long time. You can run on for a long time. You can run on for a long time, but sooner or later, God will cut you down. He has harsh words for Nebuchadnezzar. But Daniel didn't just interpret the dream. He urged him to repent. He urged him to cast himself on the mercy of the Most High. He says, break off from your sins and your iniquities and practice righteousness. Stop your iniquity and show mercy to the oppressed. Do what he does. Value what he values. Humble yourself before the Most High. But Nebuchadnezzar doesn't because pride reigns in his heart. A year passes by and you can run on for a long time. And then one day, Nebuchadnezzar's walking along his rooftop, which overlooked his famous hanging gardens, and he's overlooking the beauty of the garden city that was ancient Babylon. 
And he looks at it and he says, Is this not the great Babylon which I have built by my power and for the glory of my majesty? Pride goes before the fall. And before he can even complete the sentence, a voice cries out from heaven, Nebuchadnezzar, the kingdom has been torn from you. You are to be driven from among men. You will now live like a beast of the earth, and you will eat grass, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until what? Until again, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and he gives it to whomever he wills. And pride goes before the fall. Nebuchadnezzar is driven into the wilderness. He's driven to insanity. And he's driven into exile by the Most High. And we have no idea what happened to him during these seven years. He doesn't tell us. You know, probably for the same reason that it's hard for you to put into words those seasons in which God is working on your heart in such powerful ways. And seven years pass, his hair grows long, his nails are like claws, he's filthy, he's debased, and Nebuchadnezzar looks on the outside the way his prideful heart looks on the inside. Finally, he looks up to heaven, and his reason returned to him, and he blessed and honored the Most High God, and he declares it to the whole world. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are as nothing before him. He does whatever he wants among them, and no one can say to him, What have you done? But God doesn't leave Nebuchadnezzar in exile. He doesn't humble him to crush him. He humbles him to change him because everything is restored to Nebuchadnezzar, all of it and more. But when he sits back down on his throne, he's different. The world was given a different king. And you can hear it in his language. He says, at the end, my reason was returned to me. My majesty and my splendor were returned to me. I was reestablished in my kingdom and even more greatness was added to me. Do you hear that difference? Do you hear how differently he views his life now? Those same things that he thought were the works of his own hands. Now he sees them as gifts that he has received from the Most High. Now he sees himself as the passive agent and God is the active agent of blessing in his life. And his life has been completely changed and reoriented because now he sees his life in light of who God is. And now he stands before the people as a humbled king bowing to the Most High God. So, what's this story have to do with you? What's the relevance of this ancient story for your modern life? Maybe part of it would make sense if we made some connections and we see how this story is actually just an echo of another more familiar story. One where a king was also walking in a garden, beholding all that was his and the beauty of his kingdom. And he stopped 
thinking and remembering about how all that was given to him, and he started thinking about how it was his. He started to see his life apart from God. He thought about his own greatness and establishing his life on his own terms, and God gets cut out of the equation. Pride reigned in his heart too, and so he reached out and he ate the fruit. And this king was driven into exile too. The story of Nebuchadnezzar is just Adam 2.0. It's on replay. Nebuchadnezzar's problem is not just unique to him. It's the problem we see with us from the beginning. It's a reflection of the prideful heart of sinful man. Where God is replaced with our own resolve, our own resilience, our own grasp at glory and autonomy, our own insane delusions. And John the Baptist helps us understand what this story means for us and a call to action with it. Because it points us out into the wilderness to hear the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Because he was calling the people to repentance, to get right, to refocus their life upon God. Because he said, now the time is at hand. God is at work. He's doing a new thing and you better be ready. And so what does he tell the people? He echoes this very dream. He says, now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. So what's he saying? He's telling you the same thing Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar. You are the tree. You are the tree. You can run on for a long time, but sooner or later, God will cut you down. You can either willingly humble yourself before him or be humbled by him. But in the end, God is doing something where all flesh, young and old, rich and poor, powerful or poverty stricken, will all bow before him. You are the tree. And will God's power move you to deal with your pride or will your pride blind you to God's power? He's telling us that we are all Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar is all of us because the sin in his heart is the same sin in yours and mine. Because at the heart of sin is pride. And pride makes us think that we're all the monarch. We are the focus. We are central. We are the main character. We can treat and use others as though they exist for us, for our own majesty and service and recognition. We think our needs are greater than the needs of others. We expect others to change because we don't want to change. Sin makes us live and believe as though all things are from us, to us, and for us. And I bet there are some even now that are kind of thinking, yeah, but I'm not as bad as Nebuchadnezzar. I haven't walked out on my back patio thinking about all that I've built and the glory of my majesty. You see my house or my car. Friend, don't do that. Because the axe is laid to the root of the tree. And that thinking just makes the mistake of thinking that Nebuchadnezzar's real problem was what he thought about himself. 
That's not it. His real problem was that he didn't think about God. And we know that problem, don't we? When was the last time you really thanked God for all that he's given you? Does your life express a humble gratitude that all that you've been given and all that you have is from his hand? You didn't earn it. You didn't buy it. Your intelligence, your energy, your body, your skills, your abilities are all from him. Have you thanked him? How often do you pray for God's direction and presence in your life? Do you seek heavenly wisdom? Do you seek his face? Or do you just make decisions on your own? Without God's being considered, just like Adam and Nebuchadnezzar. As what God says is right, true, and good, constantly on your mind. Does it, you allow it to filter into every aspect of your life in your parenting? What he says is good and true in your interactions at work, in your relationships. Do you seek to do what's pleasing to him and brings him delight? Or is your parenting simply about power and convenience? Are your relationships at work about your own position and promotion? And compromising a little Christian character to make sure that you get your cut? Are your relationships about your own status and importance and value in the eyes of others? Do you not tithe because you feel as though you're a better financial planner than God? Is your marriage just simply a battle about who's right? Friends, we are all the tree. We are all Nebuchadnezzar. We are all kings in exile. And where our pride isn't simply because we think about ourselves. Our pride is because we find it so easy to not think about God. And we can live lives where he gets factored out and we forget him. And the invitation to Nebuchadnezzar is the same invitation to us. Repent and humble yourself before the Most High. Cast yourself upon his mercy. And after a story like this, I know that there's, there's typically some who hear, who hear that and shudder. One, because humility is a cuss word in our culture. But secondly, because it's the fact that what happens to Nebuchadnezzar, for some it feels like just another example of the harshness of God, and you feel like he's always looking to crush you. You feel like you're always waiting for the other shoe to drop, and eventually he's going to make you pay. And my friend, that is not true. It's not true of you, and it's not true in this story. Because here's the thing. Did you notice how the result of humbling yourself before God is not humiliation? The result is exaltation. God restored Nebuchadnezzar. God raised him up and exalted him to even greater heights than he'd ever had before. 
Because this God who reigns is rich in mercy, abounding in steadfast love, generous beyond measure. He does not humble you to humiliate you. He humbles you to exalt you. That is the story of the gospel. And that is the story that this Nebuchadnezzar story points to. Because it gives us the very roadmap of our redemption. It reminds us that God is looking for a king. He was looking for a king that wasn't obsessed with his own greatness or one who strives for earthly power, but one who humbled himself and lived fully and completely in light of God's power and God's greatness in every moment, with every breath, in every second of every day. And that king, God would exalt above the heavens so that he could sit on a throne that was everlasting and rule over an everlasting kingdom. Friends, this story gives us the very outline of the gospel story. It's also the outline of your story. About a king of extraordinary power and glory who willingly left it all behind. And he stepped off his throne and he entered into the exile of this world. And Jesus walked this very exilic road of repentance too. He goes to John the Baptist to be baptized so that he could fulfill all righteousness. He entered into a baptism of repentance at the beginning of his ministry. And even though Jesus didn't have any sins to repent of, he still embodied the fullness of everything that repentance represents because he humbled himself completely and gave himself fully to the power and the purposes of God. And he was the king that showed mercy to the oppressed. He humbled himself even when he was betrayed and beaten, mocked, scorned, overlooked. He stood before the earthly powers of this world and he entrusted himself to divine power. Time and time and time again, he rejected earthly greatness and he humbled himself before God. And he was obedient to God, to his plan, to his purposes, to the point of death even death on a cross. And he was willingly chopped down. He was willingly humiliated by this world so that he might be exalted by God. Why? So that you too may be exalted. So that you too may be exalted. Because this God is generous beyond generous, giving beyond giving. Because the resurrection is the decree from the Most High that this is my King. And when He ascended into heaven, Revelation 5 tells us the rest of the story about the return of the King out of exile who came back to sit back down on His throne. And the archangel announces the Lion of the tribe of Judah the one with the power over the cosmos and the kingdoms of men. The name above every name. The long-awaited king. And when John turns and looks, he sees a slain lamb. He sees the lamb that became the lion. He sees the humbled one that becomes the exalted one. 
That would make for a great church logo. And Christ sat down on that throne of an everlasting kingdom. And one day, the nations of every time and every place throughout history will be gathered before him in judgment. And he will use his enemies like his footstool. And do you know where you will be on that day, Christian? You will be seated right there beside him on your own throne with a crown on your head that he put there because you will rule and reign over the cosmos with him. Because the gospel tells you that you are in Christ. And in Christ, you are a co-heir with Christ. All of his power, all of his authority, all of his dominion, he shares with you. For he is a good and generous God. He's the God who humbles you so that he might exalt you. And he's the God who reigns. For the glory of Christ and the life of the world, let's pray.